the parish of Bo, we have the final uh, three remaining makos, Arba Choshech and <coughs> Makos Bechoros. And of those three, the one that I wanted to focus on as our uh, opening discussion this evening is that of Makas Choshech, <coughs> the plague of darkness. And <coughs> let's see, uh, read a couple of psukim, and that way we'll uh, initiate ourselves uh, into the discussions. So it's in Perik Yud. Perik Yud Pasuk Kaf Aleph. That's how it begins. Perik Yud Pasuk Kaf Aleph. Vayomar Shem Moshe Nitei Yodcha Ala Shemayim. Stretch out your hands, uh, literally uh, over the heavens. We'll come back to that. V'yichoshech Ala Eretz Mitzrayim, and there will be darkness over Mitzrayim. V'yamishchoshech, and the darkness will will occur. And before we get into a discussion about the darkness itself, I actually wanted to pay a bit of attention to that expression which we uh, skipped over, and that is Netei Yodcha Al Hashamayim. Stretch out your hand, Al Hashamayim. And I would like to address a comment of Rashi on this phrase. Even though, if you look at Rashi, on this uh, pasuk, he doesn't talk about it, but he has spoken about the self-same expression al hashamayim in last week's parsha, that is in Perik Tes pasuk Kafbeis, with reference to <coughs> the plague of hail. And if we look there, and we assume that Rashi's comments on the very same expression in the end of last week's parsha will be. Uh, his approach to those in our parsha as well. Again, Perik Tes, Pasuk Kaf Beis. Vayom Hashem Moshe, Neteis Es Yodcha Al Hashamayim. Stretch out your hand, extend your hand, Al Hashamayim. In that instance, there will be hail, and of course, in our parsha, it will be darkness. What is the meaning of the words Al Hashamayim? Well, Rashi gives two perushim. One is the Pshat, and one is the Drash. The Pshat Perush is Litzad Hashamayim, towards heaven. Al Hashamayim, Litzad Hashamayim, heavenwards, we would say. Okay. But there is a Medrash Haggadah, says Rashi. The Medrash Haggadah says, Higbiyu HaKadosh Baruch Hu LeMoshe LeMala Min HaShamayim. That HaKadosh Baruch Hu actually raised Moshe higher than the heavens, so that when he's extending out his hands, he is extending them Al HaShamayim, because that's where he is. So these are Rashi's two interpretations <coughs> of the expression of the phrase Al HaShamayim. And what is so significant about these two explanations is that they illustrate for us, once again, uh, an idea that we've mentioned a number of times regarding the difference between Pshat and Drash. Pshat and Drash are without a doubt not the same. But what is the difference between them? There is perhaps a convenient way of describing the difference between Pshat and Drash, which you may have heard, and that is to say that the Pshat is the literal translation and the Drash is the non-literal translation. That's a very easy uh, way to express it. And what, in, what our Pasuk and this phrase expresses is that is not correct. That is not an accurate way of describing the difference between Pshat and Drash. In fact, it is so incorrect, it is actually, in some instances, the opposite of the truth. For it's actually the drash sometimes, which is the literal translation, and the pshat, which is the non-literal translation. Why? Because pshat doesn't mean literal or non-literal. It means straightforward, just in terms of language. What is it most likely to mean on a straightforward level? Sometimes the most straightforward explanation of a word or a phrase is not the literal explanation. Not the literal translation. And here's a very good example. 
because al means upon. And therefore, al hashamayim literally translates as upon the heavens or over the heavens. Now, in the world of pshat, that's not acceptable. How does a person stretch out their hands above the heavens on a straightforward level? And therefore, the pshat, in the interest of giving us the straightforward explanation, has to take a step back, so to speak, and exercise a bit of latitude and ease off a little. And as much as it says, which literally mean, translates as above the heavens, it means towards the heavens. It is specifically the drash which then proceeds to step in and engage in the words as they literally sound like they mean. Al Hashemayim means over the heavens. How can it be? Because Moshe was raised over the heavens, and if, if that's where you are, so you stretch out your hands, they're over the heavens. So it's if, just to, to, to summarize that point, because it comes up in many different uh, settings. <coughs> It's specifically the drash sometimes that will engage in the literal translation of the words. And I think there's room to say more. The reason why the drash is able to engage in the literal translation of these words is because it has a much broader range of possibilities as to how it could explain it. It has the whole Masora, which means the definition of pshat is how can you fathom the meaning from looking at the words? All you have are the words and what they're most likely to mean. You don't have a Masora, uh, and therefore your toolbox, in a sense, is more limited, and that's why you may not have the option of explaining something literally, because you don't, you don't have the wherewithal to explain it, with which to explain it. And therefore the drash is able to explain things in, in, in the literal way because it has more in its, at its disposal in terms of what that explanation could mean. The drash can have access to a Masora that Moshe was raised above the heavens. So certainly worth noting uh, this example, al Hashamayim, and there are many other examples. In this instance, it's certainly fair to say the difference between the Pshat and the drash is that the drash is literally out of this world. But in for formulation purposes, uh, I think the, the point uh, sh- should be clear. So let's get back to Makas Choshech and we'll see Pasuk Kafbeis. Vayet Moshe es yodo al Hashamayim. Moshe indeed extended his hand al Hashamayim, wherever that is and whatever that means. Vayi Choshech afeilo b'chol Eretz Mitzrayim shloshes yomim. And you had this very uh, impenetrable darkness in mit- all of Mitzrayim for three days. And the pasuk goes on to say, people couldn't see each other, and they couldn't get up, for three days. There's a very well-known comment of Rashi, and Rashi will be guiding us through the plague of darkness here. And Rashi says, you know, the, the verse says in Kafbeis that there was darkness for three days, and Rashi explains what that means is Choshech shel Ofel. Very, very impenetrable darkness. Shelorou ish esachiv shlosha yomim. No one could see their fellow for three days. And in fact, as Mephorshim points out, this darkness was not merely, quote-unquote, the absence of light, which is the darkness that we are familiar with. Because if that was the case, you can light a candle and dispel the darkness. If the darkness is defined, uh, as it might be, and sometimes as the absence of light, so the presence of light can dispel it. But here, even if there was a a fire, (coughs) or even if there was a candle, it was not able to dispel that darkness. That is an active darkness. That's a positive darkness. In fact, some of Farshim say that when the Pasuk says, ish es achiv, es achiv, what is the meaning of the word ach? Well, we translate it as his brother or his fellow. Actually, the word ach has another meaning in Tanakh and also in contemporary Hebrew. It's a fireplace. Ach is a fireplace fewer and fewer are the people that actually have one, but that is another meaning of the word ach. And some of Farshim explain, means a person couldn't see his own fireplace. There could be a raging fire, couldn't see a thing. Didn't do anything to push away the darkness. So this is, the, this is how it was for 
the first three days. And then says Rashi, There was another set of three days, a double darkness that no one could move. So these, according to Rashi, we are dealing with two sets of three days. <coughs> and the Mepharshim asks a simple question. The Pasuk says three days. So if the Pasuk says three days, but Rashi says there were two sets of three days, but that's six days. So how can Rashi get six days when the Pasuk says three? And the simple answer, of course, is, but important to note, because this is Rashi's Parshanut, <coughs> that the Torah uses the expression shlosh yomim twice. So it's a progression as if to say, if you look again, and it's actually merging together two verses, the end of Pasuk Beis says, There was this thick darkness in Egypt, for three days. Rashi would put, even though those are the opening words of the next verse, people didn't, a person couldn't see someone else, that's the first set of three days. And then the next the words in and no one could get up for three days is a second set of three days. So to summarize the way that the psukim are flowing, according to Rashi, you have the end of Pasuk Kaf Beis and the beginning of Pasuk Kaf Gimel are, are one set of three days. That one couldn't see the other. And then the rest of Pasuk Kaf Gimel is the second set of three days. No one could move. For three days. Aha. Uh-huh. And actually, once we understand that there were two stages to Makas Choshech, the first was darkness per se, visual darkness, and the second was more tangible darkness, this will actually bring us back to Pasuk Kaf Aleph, the final two words in Pasuk Kaf Aleph. Moshe is told to, to extend his hand. And what will happen? There will be darkness in Mitzrayim. V'yamesh choshech. Those are the final two words in Pasuk Kaf Aleph. V'yamesh choshech. Well, of those two words, I think we know what one of them means. Choshech is darkness. What does V'yamesh mean? Rashi actually provides two explanations. It's not a common word, V'yamesh. That construct, you don't find it elsewhere in the Chumash. So what is the meaning of Vayamesh? How should it be translated? What is it related to or connected to? And Rashi gives two explanations. The first, says Rashi, is Vayamesh relates to the word Emesh. And what does Emesh mean? Emesh means last night, that is to say, referring to a time of darkness. The Aleph can easily slip away, as, as, as uh, can happen. And therefore, Vayamesh Choshech is like Vayamesh it should be like a nighttime, more than nighttime, as we've seen. Light couldn't dispel it. But that's the first explanation, Vyamesh, from the word emesh. Then Rashi gives a second explanation, and that is Vyamesh is from the word mamash, memashesh, namely something mamashi, something tangible. So these are two Quite different interpretations of, the, of this word v'yamesh, either from the word emesh, nighttime, or mamash, substance. And as Mepharshim point out, it's not for nothing that the word v'yamesh is, can potentially be derived or associated with either of these two expressions. Why? Because there were two types of darkness. And each one accrued to one of these words. That is to say, the first explanation, or more correctly, the first set of three days, according to Rashi, was visual darkness, or non-visual darkness. That is to say, the property of the darkness was you couldn't see anything. So it was, it was the, the darkness per se, the lack of visibility. Corresponding to that first set of three days, the word Vyamesh relates to the first explanation of Rashi. Emesh. But then there's a second set of three days where people couldn't move. But why is that so? What impeded or inhibited their movement was the tangible nature of the darkness. So that brings us now to the second explanation of Rashi, mamash, 
So we see that the Rashis are beginning to be lined up. There's two explanations of the word Vyamesh because there's two sets of three days. Each set, a different explanation. And the truth is, the matter goes further still. How so? Because Rashi then, to continue on Rashi on Pasuk Kafbeis, he then asks an interesting question. Why darkness? Okay, it's good, Shaila. Why darkness? And Rashi gives two answers. Let us see. Why did Hashem bring darkness on the Egyptians? Says Rashi. Firstly, there were Rishaim in that generation. They didn't want to leave Mitzrayim. Imagine. As bad as Mitzrayim was, and there were a lot of them, apparently, with different traditions, but whatever it is, a lot, they didn't want to leave. Staying in Mitzrayim for them was preferable than leaving. And that was not acceptable. But they died during these three days of darkness. Egyptians don't need to see Jews dying even if they don't want to leave, which means they have absolutely excluded themselves from the, the destiny of the Jewish people, and HaKadosh Baruch Hu decides that, so that that's, that's to be the end of them. Okay, the Egyptians don't need to see that. Because they'll say, lokim kamonu. Oh, so Hashem is, is, is striking them, He's striking us, we're all in it together. That's not necessary. But then, says Rashi, there was another explanation Another reason why Hashem brought darkness, and that is what one wonders, just parenthetically, I mean, one can ponder all of these things, but uh, what, after, the, after the plague of darkness was over, what did the Egyptians make of the fact that a, a massive amount of Jews were not there? Did they put two and two together? Could they see them where they were buried? Did they think they'd left already? That we don't know. Either way, the main thing is they shouldn't see the whole process. But then says Rashi another explanation as to why darkness specifically. It gave the Jewish people a chance to look through the vessels and belongings of the Egyptians, interestingly. Why? To what end? So when the Jewish people left, and they were borrowing, as we know, gold and silver. Can we have some gold and silver? And the Egyptians said, oh, we, you know, we'd love to help, but we're just out of gold and silver. We gave it the office. So the Jews were able to say, Oh, Melo, actually, I happen to know that's not true. If you need a bit of help finding your gold and silver, we're here to help you. Because they'd actually had a preview during the three days of darkness. So these are Rashi's two very interesting, each one is interesting for itself, and Rashi gives us two. But the basic question is, this is a departure for Rashi. I mean, we have to see, we have to understand the consistency within Rashi. Rashi sources in the Medrash, why darkness? It happens to be that the Medrash asks the question of why with regards to every single one of the plagues. Why blood? Why frogs? Why lice? Etc. And Rashi never brings it. Rashi doesn't bring these one for one. They're in, in Makas Orov, interestingly, in last week's Parsha, Rashi sends you to the Medrash and says, all of these things have been discussed, the, the measure for measure, why the punishment fits the crime for this plague and for this plague. Look in the Medrash Rabbah. It's not my job, says Rashi. I'm involved in resolving uh, pshat issues in, in the Pasuk. If you want to see what's, what it's all about, have a look in the Medrash. So Rashi doesn't get involved, nor should he. And yet, here, he did. So, manishtana ha-makazos mikol makos why is this plague different than all other plagues that Rashi feels that he should explain to us what, why this, the plague took this form? And the Maharal in the Gurari explains because this plague is necessarily different than the other nine. This plague is explicitly different than the other nine. How so? It's the only plague where we see from the verses that it shifted it changed form mid-plague. 
The POSIC wants you to know that the, the plague had a certain effect for three days, and then it changed to have a different effect for another three days, as we've already seen. First three days, you can't see anything, but that's all there is to it. Emish, just dark. The second three days, you can't move. No other plague shifted mid-plague to become another form of the same thing. And having explained all of that, and indeed, this is still the same Dibur. When Rashi talks about the two sets of three days, and then goes on to ask the question, and why darkness? It isn't even a new discussion in Rashi. It's the same Dibur, because it's a progression of the same thing. Having identified two different forms of darkness, which is unique to this plague, why were the two different forms? And the answer, says Rashi, is because there were two different goals. And each type of darkness helped achieve that goal. Namely, the first answer, that, the first explanation that Rashi gave is that the Egyptians shouldn't see the Jews being buried. So what, what type of darkness is required to, to uh, preclude them from seeing? Dark. The darkness that cannot be penetrated. More than that, you don't need. And that corresponds to the first set of three days. No one could see anything, and they couldn't see what they didn't need to see. But then, the second explanation that Rashi gives, that the Jewish people should are able to enter their houses and see what they have, etc., for that, it's not enough that they can't see, because if they hear and can sense that someone is there, they could yet take measures to stop them. For that, you need an immobilizing darkness, a paralyzing darkness. So there's nothing they can do and perhaps didn't even hear. The density of the darkness, it's hard to know. It raises all sorts of other questions. How do they breathe? Do they eat? Etc. But certainly to be able to interfere or intercept with uh, someone co coming into their premises, that was no longer an option. And therefore, if we sum up everything that we've said so far in this Rashi, we will see that there is a duality within the plague of darkness that is threaded through three specific elements. Number one, the very term that's used to describe the darkness, viyamesh, which itself splits into two, emesh as dark, mamash as tangible. That's the first point of duality. Secondly, the plague itself split into two sets of three days with a different type of darkness for each. Extremely dark, impenetrably dark, and uh, immobilizingly dark. And then finally, we come to the two explanations for Rashi for purposes of which each one needed a different type of darkness. Shouldn't see the burial, that's impenetrable darkness. Should be able to enter the homes, that's the immobilizing darkness. So this is real chinuch uh, in terms of seeing the flow of how Rashi explains, and again, true to his method, why he chooses to get involved in the questions that he does. There is one PS to the plague of darkness before we move on, and that is, according to Rashi, if our mathematics is correct, the plague of darkness totaled six days, because three day three and three is six. The problem is, Rashi has already told us in Parshas Va'era that all the plagues lasted for seven days. Not only the plague of blood, where the Torah says explicitly that it was for seven days, <clears throat> but Rashi says, and so too all the plagues were for seven days. The obvious exception would be Makas Bechorus, <clears throat> which did not take place over seven days. It actually did not take place over any time at all, because it was the one instant they were alive and the next they were dead. It's possibly even an irreducible uh, amount of time and certainly no more <clears throat> than an instant. But with the, with the exception of Makas Bechorus, all the Makas were seven days, and yet Makas Choshech is six. Where is the missing day, we ask? And interestingly, the Medrash addresses this, and the Medrash says that the plague of darkness was also for seven days. So where is the seventh day? At Kriyas Yamsuf. Because as we know, when the Egyptians were chasing after uh, the Bnei Yisrael, <clears throat> so the cloud went behind Bnei Yisrael, and it enveloped the Egyptians in darkness, and the Medrash says that was the final day of 
Makas Choshev. So it's really an unusual Makkah now. Not only does it change form midway, three days this type of darkness, three days this type of darkness, but also one of the days is actually takes place a good while later on. So certainly one for the books. Uh, the final day if we may borrow an expression from the uh, music industry, the final day of Choshech was what they call a suspended seventh. So these are uh, the comments of Rashi and the Medrash with regards to Makas Choshech. <coughs> Moving on to the heart of the Parsha, one could say. So I'd actually like to begin uh, this discussion by referring to something which isn't in our Parsha at all. But instantly we will see how it is connected to the central theme of the Parsha. And that's the mitzvah of tzitzis. The mitzvah of tzitzis we will not meet until Chumash Bamidbar, Parsha Shalach. However, it's very much connected to Yitzias Mitzrayim, as indeed the final pasuk of the paragraph reads of Ani Hashem Elokechem Me'eretz Mitzrayim. That's how we read in, in Shema. And indeed, Rashi cites his teacher, Rabbi Moshe Hadarshan, in explaining how the details of the mitzvah of tzitzis all correspond to elements of Yetzias Mitzrayim. It's a fascinating uh, discussion from Rabbi Moshe Hadarshan. For example, says Rabbi Moshe Hadarshan, the tzitzis are placed on the corner, which is called a kanaf. The word kanaf is found with regards to Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. Hashem says, Kanaf is a corner, it's also a wing. The, the, the corner of a garment is like the wing of the garment, and therefore it, it's reminiscent of the wings of eagles with which Hashem took us out. Additionally, there are specifically <coughs> four corners to the garment of tzitzis, and that corresponds to the hotesi, v'itzalti, v'ga'alti, v'lakati, the four stages of redemption in terms of leaving Mitzrayim, that's before we get to the land of Israel, uh, which we spoke about last week. Four corners, arba kanfos, arba <coughs> ge'ulos. And then, says Rabbi Moshe Hadarshan, and you know, the tzitzis have eight threads. Why eight? Vasepes eight says Rabbi Moshe Hadarshan, this corresponds to the, <coughs> to the eight days from the time we left Mitzrayim until the time we sang Az Yashir at the Red Sea. So that is, you have Knaf, is Kanfe Nisharim, four Kanfos, four Geulos, eight, eight threads, eight strings, eight days. There's just one problem. And that is, there weren't eight days between when we left Mitzrayim and when we said Az Yashir. <coughs> Anyone who keeps Pesach will know that uh, everything that happened in the Yamsuf happened on the seventh day of Pesach. That's when we read Az Yashir. Rashi says explicitly, gives us the timeline in next week's Parsha. Kriyas Yamsuf <coughs> is day seven. How then can Rabbi Moshe Adarshan say that it's on day eight? That is a very simple question. If ever there was a case of uh, potentially losing the thread, it's here, because there seems to be one thread too many. But the answer to this question is most profound. <coughs> the goal of leaving Mitzrayim is described in that Pasuk, which says, But for what? To what end? To be as a God for you. And that is a, what we would call a positive definition of freedom. By positive definition, we mean to say that it defines freedom as to what it is, not just what it isn't. The, the contemporary, or perhaps easier, definition of freedom is simply no longer slaves. That's a negative definition. It only defines you in terms of what you're not, but it doesn't define you in terms of what you are. So, but we leave slavery 
of Mitzrayim to become connected to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. That is the positive realization of the redemption from Mitzrayim. And this will potentially change the way we look at every aspect of our, of, of our staying in Mitzrayim, both the subjugation and the redemption. Why? <coughs> the Pasuk later on in Chumash Devarim will refer to Egypt as the Kur HaBarzel. Kur HaBarzel is a refining furnace, a smelting furnace, which has a, it refines of impurities. And what that means is, however we understand that it worked, the, the exile experience in Egypt was already one that is refining the Jewish people from categorical impurities and, and enabling them, when the time comes, to become Hashem's people. It changes the way we look at that, the, all of those, those 210 years. They were a necessary process, but they were a positive process. They're bringing the Jewish people and readying them to become Hashem's people when the time comes. But the truth is, it also affects the way we understand the redemption from Egypt. Because if we define redemption in purely what we would call political terms, there's room to say (coughs) that's not necessarily something to be celebrated every year. Because we have not always had that political freedom. Jewish people have often found themselves in situations which rivaled, if not exceeded, those of, uh, of Mitzrayim. And where does that leave Pesach? <coughs> However, the attainment of our status as Hashem's people, which we got when we left Mitzrayim, has never been lost. And that is something on an, on an inner level, on a fundamental level, to be celebrated every year wherever we are, as easy as it is to say from the comfort of where we are. But it remains true. And in fact, the Meshachachma says, if you look in uh, a Pasuk in our Parsha, Perik Yudbeis, Pasuk Yudalad, you will see this concept. Perik Yudbeis, Pasuk Yudalad. The Pasuk says, This day shall be a remembrance for you. Pardon me, v'chagosem aso chag l'ashem, and you shall celebrate it as a festival for Hashem, l'doroseichem, for your generations, chukas olam t'chaguhu, an everlasting celebration. Again, the, the, the words that we will focus on, the final words, v'chagosem aso chag l'ashem, you celebrate Pesach as a festival for Hashem, l'doroseichem, chukas olam t'chaguhu, you will celebrate it for in your generations for all time. What is the meaning of this Pasuk? Says Meshachachma, echoing our theme. There are two ways you can relate to Pesach. You can relate to Pesach in purely temporal terms, in purely political terms, and, and, and that we were subjugated and now we're free. Says Meshachachma, if you do, you might not celebrate Pesach in all generations. You might not celebrate Pesach in all times. Because what if your, your political freedom has been taken from you again? And that's why the Pasuk says the orientation, the fundamental orientation of Pesach is v'chagosem aso chag l'ashem. Celebrate it as a festival for Hashem. What does it mean as a festival for Hashem? As a celebration <coughs> of the fact that you are now belong to Hashem. Which is what you received when you, when you left Egypt and you never lost it. Wherever you may be, that you never lost. And if that's the, what's fundamentally being celebrated... It's celebrated for all generations, every year, in all circumstances. So these are very profound um, themes with regards to the basic definition of the redemption from Egypt. What does it mean to be redeemed? At what point is that defined? At what point is that realized? And if we ponder this matter just a little deeper we will discover something more surprising still. Namely, if we're saying that the full realization and culmination, shall we say, of the redemption is our connection with Hashem as his people, there's room to say that the redemption from Egypt began even before we left. How could that be? 
We are saying that we were we Yitzias Mitzrayim was initiated even before we took the before we took the first step out of Egypt. But how could that be? Because what did we do for that final day? We brought the Korban Pesach. What is the Korban Pesach? What is bring What does it mean to bring a Korban? It's called Avoda. Avoda, divine service. Our relationship with Hashem fundamentally is that of Avodai Heim, Avde Hashem. How does a person attain the designation of Hashem's servants? By divine service. What that means is the Korban Pesach that we brought on the day before we left Mitzrayim was the beginning of the actualization of of attaining our status as Avde Hashem, which is what the redemption is all about which is an, an amazing perspective, <clears throat> again, by which, whereby we're saying that in the fundamental redemption took place even before we left, aside from the seven weeks afterwards when we received the Torah. But the first step was before we left. That was the first step in initiating us in our relationship with Hashem. And this will give us a, a new perspective on the Korban Pesach. I think for us, when it comes to Pesach, the focus is not so much the Korban Pesach because there's so many other practical things going on. But to appreciate what the centerpiece, essentially, of the Seder, which is the Korban Pesach. But why is it so important? Because <coughs> the Korban Pesach was the means through which we initiated our relationship with Hashem as Avde Hashem, through Avoda. All the critical parts of our relationship with Hashem are renewed every year. Whether it's Rosh Hashanah, Malchus and Rosh Hashanah, whether it's Kapara on Yom Kippur, and whether it's becoming Hashem's people on Pesach. In other words, what we're saying is, if, you under, if we understand the significance of the Korban Pesach and what it means about our relationship with Hashem, <coughs> then bringing the Korban Pesach every year is not merely commemorative in nature. It's not just to commemorate that, what, what that Korban represented. It's a renewal, an annual renewal of, of, of that Korban. And that explains to us why when the, Pes- when the Korban Pesach exists, the penalty for not bringing a Korban Pesach is very severe. As, as the Pasuk tells us, if a person doesn't bring a Korban Pesach, the consequences are dire. Kares, what's called, which is a very severe punishment and almost never exists by neglecting to do a positive mitzvah. There are certain uh, negative prohibitions that can carry it, but to neglect to do a positive mitzvah, we almost never find it. And I say almost because there's only one other place (coughs) where neglect of a positive mitzvah brings kares, and that's mila. And the reason is exactly the same because they're both covenantal. They're both about initiation into the relationship with Hashem every year, and therefore it cannot be neglected on any year. So it's not so much zecher lebris to bring a korban pesach every year; it's chidush habris. It's a renewal. So it's a, it's a new, I think, appreciation of what the korban pesach represents as our first step into the domain of avde Hashem through that avoda. And this will explain to us something else. The, the eating of the Korban Pesach assumes central significance, way in excess of other korbanos. In other words, a korban is not the a Pesach is not the only korban to be eaten, but the emphasis on the eating of the Korban Pesach is in excess of any other korban that's eaten. And how does this express itself? For example, <coughs> um, a korban pesach can be brought even if most or all of the people are Jewish people are Tomei. Nonetheless, it can be brought. There are other korbanos that can also be brought in the state of Tumah, but they can never be eaten in the state of Tumah. The only exception is the korban pesach. It can be brought in a state of Tumah and it can be eaten in a state of Tumah. That shows us that the, the importance of the eating of the Korban Pesach is beyond eating any other Korban. Interestingly, <coughs> for those who keep a mitzvah watch with the uh, Rambam, as we know, the Rambam always includes 
details of a mitzvah within that mitzvah. Every detail doesn't become its own mitzvah, otherwise you'd have thousands of mitzvahs. So if you have your korban shlamim, or your korban toda, and there's ten details there, they're all within the mitzvah called korban shlamim, korban toda. When it comes to the korban Pesach, the Rambam lists the eating of the korban as a separate positive mitzvah. It is not just, quote-unquote, a detail within the mitzvah of Korban Pesach. Rather, it's its own mitzvah. And, and these, from all of these vantage points, and there are others as well, <coughs> we see that somehow the eating of the Korban Pesach is of the essence. Of the essence in, in the English sense, not in the Yiddish sense. But the question is, why is it so? And Rebleit Minsberg explains as follows. The truth is, as soon as we, we begin to meaningfully speak about the idea of eating a korban, the whole thing is, is actually, it's, it's, it's a puzzle. Why? Because what is a korban if not something that you've offered to Hashem? It's amazing. The more you think about it, the notion you've taken something, you've brought it as an offering to Hashem, and then you proceed to eat it. But I thought you just gave it to Hashem. It's a, it's, it's a very interesting, it's a bit of a disarming question. And of course, it's a sensitive question. We're dealing with fleshics after all. But nonetheless, you, you, you offer it up, and then, and then you consume part of it. Well, who told you you could do that? Does, isn't that antithetical to what a korban is meant to be? You give it to Hashem, you take some of it back. But says Rav Minsberg, what it means is <coughs> the concept of consuming a korban is that to, on a certain fundamental level, the Jewish people also belong to Hashem. And therefore they're able to partake even of something that they'd offered up to him. In the expression of the Gemara, Mishulchan Gavoa Kazachu. They have, they have received their parts of the korban from the table of on high. It's like dining at the divine table. It's partaking of something that you've offered to Hashem because you're also there at that level where the korban is, so are you. It's a statement about the kedusha of the Jewish people. The korban belongs to Hashem and so do they. And accordingly, they can partake of some korbanos. It should be noted, <coughs> even though non-Jews can offer korbanos, they can only offer korbanos that can't be consumed. Like an ola which is completely goes on the, on the Mizbeach. It is a uniquely Jewish thing, the idea of partaking from a korban. And once we understand that the eating of the korban represents the Jewish people belonging to Hashem, we can then appreciate again how it's so emphasized with korban Pesach more than other korbanos, because korban Pesach is when it all began. Korban Pesach is when that connection was initiated, and therefore it is an emphatic statement that this is when you became Hashem's people. It is all the more, therefore, of the essence that the korban should be eaten by the Jewish people in order to establish that moment when the connection that enabled that actually began. So these are... are truly wonderful uh, perspectives on the very core concepts that we talk about so often of the, of the redemption from Egypt. What does it mean? When did it begin? And how does that express itself on an ongoing basis in the halachas of the Korban Pesach? And the truth is, again, as we move into the PS of the, <coughs> of the discussion, there are implications. Firstly, let us return to Rabbi Moshe Hadarshan, who explained to us how the aspects of the mitzvah of tzitzis correspond to details of Yitzhak Mitzrayim, in the course of which he said that there are eight strings, because there were eight days from the time we left Mitzrayim until the time we sang Az Yashir after Kriyas Yamsuf. Our question was, Kriyas Yamsuf was on the seventh day of Pesach, not the eighth day. Why are we calling it the eighth day? But the Mepharshim explained, because tzitzis is about the inner connection. That means there's two clocks of redemption. 
in, in temporal or political terms, we left Mitzrayim on the 15th of Nisan when we actually set foot out of Mitzrayim. But in inner terms, in fundamental spiritual terms, we left Mitzrayim the day before when we engage and involved ourselves in the Avodah of the Korban Pesach. And that's the element that's being celebrated and, and uh, represented by Tzitzis. And therefore, from a Tzitzis point of view, it really was eight days from the 14th of Nisan, when we brought the Korban Pesach, till singing Az Yashir. Eight strings. Fascinating. And it's moreover, to see how this idea expresses itself and these will be our final two points for this uh, discussion, even though one could certainly broaden it out uh, ever more, expresses itself in halacha and in pshuta shamikra. And it doesn't get better than that. How does it express itself in halacha? Says the Maharal. When do the mitzvahs of Pesach begin? What we call Pesach. Well, they don't all begin at the same time. Uh, the mitzvah of eating matzah, for example, we call it chak matzahs. So, you know, when matzah begins, that's when Pesach begins. Okay, the mitzvah, the positive mitzvah of eating matzah begins on Seder night, the night of the 15th. Quite so. But isn't there another mitzvah, the prohibition against having chametz? When does that begin? That doesn't begin on, the, on, on, the, on Seder night. It begins midday the day before. Why? And what is midday the day before? It's the day of bringing the Korban Pesach. In other words, if we define the festival by its halachas, and we see that different mitzvahs of the festival in, are initiated at different times, that tells you that the festival begins at different times, in different respects. <clears throat> From a certain point of view, as is evidenced by the prohibition against having chametz and eating chametz, it starts on the 14th. From another point of view, it starts on the 15th, as evidenced by the mitzvah of eating matzah. So the halacha, in a sense, also shows us that the beginning of the festival is time-stamped in two different places, because there's two different aspects of the festival that, that are beginning. And what else, what else do we have? The final point. And this is mentioned by the Taz, the Turei Zahav. Now, the Turei Zahav actually has a commentary on Rashi, famous commentary, Divri, Divri David, but what he's about to say is said in his commentary on Shulchan Aruch, in the Turei Zav itself. And that is, he directs our attention to Pasuk Tesvav. Perik Yudbeis Pasuk Tesvav. Which states, Shivas Yom Ematzos Tochenu, for seven days eat matzos. Ach bayom harishon tashbisu soomi batechen. However, on the Yom Harishon, get rid of chametz. When is there a mitzvah to get rid of chametz? The day before Pesach, the 14th of Nisan. But except last we checked, Pesach doesn't start on the 14th. It starts on the 15th. So how can you refer to the Erev Pesach, the 14th, as Yom Harishon? And indeed, Rashi cites the Gemara in Pesachim Dachei, Rishon can be can mean not the first day, but the preceding day. It can. And that's Rashi's chosen approach. It starts on the 15th. The 14th is the Rishon, the preceding day. But says the Taz, from a certain point of view, we now understand that midday through the 14th of Nisan, it is the first day. Kipshuto. It's the first day of Pesach. From a certain point of view, Pesach begins on the 14th because that's when the Korban Pesach is brought, representing the redemption in the way that it does. So these are from so many different um, um, <coughs> angles and corners um, developing this understanding of the core concept of Yitzias Mitzrayim with, uh, with all that, uh, that goes with that. Well, Let's conclude our discussion this evening, which is, uh, we see Parshas Bo is really when one could say mitzvahs begin and, and, and are very, very clearly intertwined with, with Jewish destiny. So it's hard to talk about one without the other, um, and, and uh, so we do. <coughs> if we have a look at the final mitzvah for today, and that's the prohibition against owning chametz. Shivas yamim so'or le'yimatzi bevateichem. 
for seven days. And as we know, there is a negative prohibition, I believe is actually two, what we call Bali Roe and Bali Matze. It shouldn't be seen, shouldn't be owned, a negative prohibition against owning Chomets. Now, uh, and of course, we take all the measures that we do to get rid of Chomets and all the ways that we do, destroying it, burning it, Bittl Chomets and, 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 and all of that. <coughs> Rabbeinu Nisim, the Ran, has, makes a comment with regards to the prohibition against owning Chomets, which set a lot of uh, rabbis after him uh, in a flurry. And that is, says the Ran, Rabbeinu Nisim. Why does the Torah f- forbid you to, to own Chomets? The very question seems a bit unusual. Uh, it forbids because it forbids and get on with it. But the, but the Ran says no. It seems to me that the reason why the Torah forbids owning Chomets, which it does not do for other things. Chomets is not the only thing that, that you're not allowed to eat. But, but it is the only thing you're not allowed to own. Why have that accompanying prohibition against even owning it? Says the Ran, I'll tell you why. Because the consequences for eating Chomets are very severe. Kores again. But couple that with the fact that bread is the type of thing and Chomets is, is in the house the whole year round. So in other words, it's very, very natural for a person. It's not like non-kosher food or whatever it might be where uh, you never go near it. It's in the house the whole time. But the penalty for eating on Pesach is very severe. So the combination of the, of the consequences, but also the, how accessible it is, the Torah says, get it out the house so that you shouldn't come to eat it. Now, what's fascinating about this comment of the Ran is that he has identified, seemingly, the Isser against owning Chomets as a protective measure that you shouldn't come to eat it. Protective measure, those are the words, and in fact, those are the Ran's words. It is a siyag that you shouldn't come to eat it, because you might, and it's terrible if you do, so it says the Torah, so just get it out of the house so that you shouldn't come to that situation. That's a protective measure. That's a siyag. Why is this so significant? For two reasons. Firstly, we normally associate the concept of a protective measure with rabbinic enactments. Asusiyag la Torah. As if to say the Torah gives you the actual Torah prohibition, the Rabbanon will will add protective measures that you shouldn't come to that prohibition. It's very rare, not unheard of and not unique, but very rare, that the Torah itself provides a mitzvah which functions as a protective measure that you shouldn't come to another mitzvah. What's called siyag min ha-Torah. A, a Torah-level fence for another Torah-level to protect against a Torah-level mitzvah. But what's also very interesting is that uh, the Ran seems to be engaging in what we would call darshinan time dekra to expound the reasons for the mitzvahs, perhaps even with halachic consequences if you look upon the mitzvah in this way. But as Rav Zevin in the Sefer Ma'adim Ba'alacha explains, it could be that there's basis for what the, for what the Ran is saying. Because if you look in, in Pasuk Yudtes, Perik Yudbeis Pasuk Yudtes, Shivas Yomim Se'or Le'yimatsi Bebateichem, right, the Isser against owning uh, Chomets. And then what does the Pasuk say? Because, for, key, for, or because, whoever does, Karis. It's very bad. In other words, says Rav Zevin, and the Gemara also says this, as much as we do not independently, perhaps, expound reasons for mitzvahs with any halachic uh, goal in mind. But what if the Torah itself provides the reason? Maybe it's different. And maybe that's what's happening here. Because the Torah says, get rid of chametz because whoever eats chametz is, 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 will, will get karis. It sounds like the Torah itself is giving the reason. And removing chametz from your premises is protection against that. But the pièce de résistance here comes from the Meshachachma. And he puts, and again, as he so often does, the world of parshanut and machshava and halacha and everything is all, is all blended together. It, it, it remains a, a phenomenon 
the Torah is giving you a mitzvah to protect against another mitzvah. It, it is unusual. What's it all about? <coughs> Says Meshachachma. What we know about the Jewish people in Egypt is that what allowed them to remain possible to redeem them were their protective measures, were their siyagim. What were they protecting? As we know, the Medrash says, they made a point. They didn't change the way they dressed. They didn't change the way, their names. They didn't change the way they spoke. In terms of other mitzvahs, there was a lot to be desired. No need to elaborate upon that. But what did they have going? What allowed them to be, quote-unquote, redemption-friendly is the fact that they had maintained their identity through these protective things. Not to change how they spoke, not to change how they dressed, not to change what they were called. And it, protect, it, it gave them that, that sense of identity. When the time came to redeem the Jewish people, there was a Jewish people to speak of. Not in the best of shape, but identifiable. And what we find in these 70 years of Golis Bavel, and this Mepharshim noticed, is a, a near complete disintegration of the Jewish people in just 70 years. And the reason is they, they went into exile unprotected. That is to say, there were no barriers, no boundaries, no protective measures, and therefore they, they couldn't defend themselves, uh, so to speak. And, and uh, Shabbos w- w- was uh, deteriorated, intermarriage was rife, and they didn't really know how to, how to set their boundaries and, and protect against, against these mitzvahs. And it's for this reason that the very first thing that we were instructed to do upon returning to Israel in the second commonwealth, the second Beis HaMikdash, by the Anshe Knesset HaGadola, as quoted in Pirkei Ovos, is Asu Siyag Torah. That's where it comes from, the Jewish people. You cannot ever risk <coughs> not being protected. Golis was still in the wings, right? It was understood that the second base of Mikdash was, was perhaps gonna, only going to be temporary. You cannot go in unprotected. And, uh, and, and that's why Asusia Glatora, to make protective measures to protect the Jewish people. And of course, Golis, no need to, uh, to understate things, has not been easy, but it's 2,000 years, and the Jewish people are still an identifiable area identifiable thriving in many places surviving uh, how can we survive this long intact and it, and they, we, we collapsed and dissolved within 70 years of bavel the answer is siyag la torah and that's part of the message of yetzias mitzrayim and <coughs> the meshachachma has an explan an interpretation of a gemara which is simply uh, unbelievable the Gemara in Maseches Shabbos, in the first parak, <coughs> it talks about a number of protective measures that were, that were set in place, the famous Yud Chestavr, these 18 protective measures. And the Gemara says, these 18 things, even if Elio Hanavi would come and say to undo them, we wouldn't listen to him. That's what the Gemara says. And what does the Gemara mean to say? Well, on a straightforward level, what it's saying is, they're so important, even someone of the authority of Elio Hanavi would not be able to undo them. But Meshachachma says, no, that's not what it means. It's not that Eliyahu would come out of the blue and says, I'm Eliyahu Hanavi, and I say, you don't need to do these things, that we wouldn't listen to him. What it means is, we're waiting for Eliyahu Hanavi to come. When? The day before Mashiach. That means when Eliyahu turns up to announce Mashiach, Mashiach will be there within the day. And what is the Gemara saying? Even if, even if Eliyahu Hanavi turns up and says, Mashiach will be here tomorrow, and therefore you can dispense with these protective measures, we wouldn't listen to him. Because until we see the whites of Mashiach's eyes himself, those, those protective measures are in place. That's what it means. Afilu, afilu yavo Eliyahu. Not Eliyahu out of the blue. Eliyahu saying Mashiach will be here within 24 hours, so you can relax. No. The siyagim are replaced until Mashiach himself comes. That's what we learned from Yitzhak Mitzrayim. And because such an important part of, of, of the story and of the process of redemption from Mitzrayim was our protective measures, says, our, says the Meshachachma, so don't be surprised if some of the mitzvahs that celebrate the Exodus take the form of protective measures. It's part of the celebration. It's part of the message. In the same way <coughs> that we eat matzah on Seder night because we ate matzah when we left and we bring the Korban Pesach because we caught the Korban Pesach when we left. 
there's a certain mitzvah which is a siyag for another mitzvah because it was thanks to the siyagim that we left. That becomes enshrined, the concept of a siyag, on a Torah level. The Torah now makes a siyag for its own mitzvahs to remember, to remind you of the importance of siyagim through which we left Mitzrayim. Well, we're waiting for uh, <coughs> uh, Elio Anavi to come and tell us. We're, we're looking forward to, to refusing to relax the uh, the protective measures and then uh, waiting to see that to see the day through but in the meanwhile uh, certainly uh, worthwhile to take the opportunity of parshas bow to really ponder through the mitzvahs the concept of of Yitzhak Mitzrayim and the more we ponder it and the more we absorb it Mitzvah Shem the more we can replicate it Ki we should see the full the full geula Amen all the very best. Have a good night and a wonderful day.